All right, everyone, find your seat or kneel down like Carl and uh, in the aisle. That's all right too. If you did not, if you did not already pick up a note sheet off that back table, raise your hand and Brad will bring you one. So, uh, how many we need? Let's see. I see one, two, three. Looks like about four extras, Brad. Grab one of those. Zach's going to lead us through. This will actually be a, a two-part, uh, two-Wednesday night endeavor. So whatever we don't get it to tonight, Zach said, we'll, we'll do next Wednesday night. So we'll have that, have that in place. Um, all right. A couple of, couple of things before we start. Ways we can pray for one another, things going on uh, that you all know of, maybe updates to things we've talked about previous Wednesday nights or Sunday nights. Yes, Naomi? Okay, good. So Judy is home after her surgery and, and doing well. I had a chance today, I know not everyone knows them, but I had a chance today to see Bob and Barbara Bartholomew. And so Bob's been in the hospital a couple of times recently with some ER visits and things like that, but he was doing, uh, seemed to be doing a little bit better. So just continue to pray for them if you, encourage them if you know them. All right, this Sunday night, we have our community foster care event. So if you've signed up, we won't have any other things happening here at the at the building, uh, but if you've signed up to help with that, that's coming up this Sunday night. Then we'll meet like regular next Wednesday night. The following Sunday night, August 11th, is when we do our school serve day. We'll go around to schools and do yard cleanup, trim bushes, build things for them. So that's coming up on, uh, on August the 11th. But uh, Jim, as many of you know, is in Calgary. Jim and Courtney are in Calgary with our mission team there. Then we also have the mission team that is in Panama, so we want to be praying for them. And speaking of praying for someone, I'm glad you're here. Way to hide over there to the side. In fact, come on. Come up here. We didn't plan this at all except for the fact that I got wind that this is probably, what, your last time with us? Yeah. Okay. So fill in everybody with plan where you're going, when. Yeah, I, well, I leave on Sunday. Family's going to hang out in Amsterdam for a few days, and then I'm going to Moscow, Russia, to work with crew for the next three years. <laughs> so we'll see after that. <laughs> so three-year commitment. Mm -hmm. Primary job when you get there. What's yeah, working with university students. So Moscow has over a million university students in the city itself. So my first year will be learning Russian so I can do ministry in Russian. Um, and then the next few years, we'll just be on campus. How much Russian do you have now? <laughs> I don't speak it very well. I understand it, but I don't okay. speak it very well. Okay, so yeah. you're at the understand phase. Yeah, so we'll see when I get back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So three-year commitment, uh, mm -hmm. you live on the university? Or where do you live, just in the city? Just yeah, I just live in the city. Roommates mm -hmm. and stuff like that, so awesome. Yeah. How particularly would you like us to pray for you? especially going out. I mean, language activation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Russian's a beast. Um, but yeah, I think just 
season of transition is just really difficult. Um, trying to find a place to live once we get there. The apartment market is just kind of all over the place, so we'll yeah. see who will rent to us as internationals. So, yeah, all the things. And then we have a staff conference that I will be there for on the 12th, so that'll be really exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. You guys have any other questions while we put it on the spot here? Uh, Aaron's on the spot. This is your chance. <laughs> Three years from now, you can ask me questions, so uh, go for it. what does the day look like? Okay, yeah, so we are, we focus on three universities. Um, so we're at Moscow State University, which is like the Harvard of Russia. Um, so like everybody comes to Moscow to study there. And then we are at an international university. So like over 75 countries represented on that university. And then we're at a teaching university. And so we're trying to reach the future teachers of Russia. Um, and so we just kind of choose one of those um, for the day and our whole team will go out. Um, we're very much in the just initiative evangelism phase of our ministry. Um, and so we'll just be on campus for three, four hours, just initi initiating with students. Um, if we have follow-ups with students that we've met prior, we'll go to a coffee shop or go to a park and just walk and talk with them. Um, and then the evenings usually look like having students in our house um, for different like events, just like girls' night or cooking or just yeah, a way to just make more connection points with them outside of the university. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, very recently our friend Lisa, who I met my first year on stint, she became a believer this past spring. So I'm really excited because it was like two and a half years of praying for her to become a believer. Um, and so I get to go back and disciple her, which I'm really excited about. Um, yeah, just a huge answer to prayer. So it takes a lot longer in Russia, but we get to celebrate those small victories and then these really big ones a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, we kind of joke that it's obviously the Lord's calling, but it's also Tim Harden's fault. Like he taught us to really love to travel together and um, get to interact with new cultures. And so, yeah, he's very supportive, actually. Um, we're hoping we'll get him over to Russia. He hates the cold, so we'll see if that <laughs> happens soon. But yeah, he's very supportive. God, thank you so much. God, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. It's a hope that's shared here and, and by believers all around the world and, and something we want to be able to share and proclaim. And God, thank you for leading Miriam to be able to go and do that in, in Russia. God, give her favor and uh, diligence as she works learning the language. Father, I pray for these relationships that have already been built that she'll be able to reconnect with, the new relationships that they'll have there. We know even when we think about ministry here in the U.S., and, and I think about my friend in Nairobi, I think about the work in, in Moscow, the way that university students are so much on the forefront of what's happening with the spread of the gospel and, and how they're able to take that from their university into so many different areas of life and so many places around the world. So, God, I pray that you continue to lead in that way. God, I do pray for her family during this time, uh, the love they have for one another and, and the support they have of being able to share the gospel in so many different cultures and places. God, thank you for how that prayer uh, even reflects back to, 
to Zach and Becky and their family and background and how you've used them. God, I pray for, for them and their family, for their marriage, for their kids. God, thank you for the example they are of what that looks like as a family and what it looks like to live that out in so many different areas of life. God, for Zach as he, uh, as he teaches tonight. And God, we do pray for your continued guidance for our mission teams in Calgary and Panama. Give them wisdom about how they invest their time this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go for it, Zach. Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me? Excellent. All right. If you didn't get a handout, if you just came in, you will want a handout because there's a lot tonight that we're going to talk about. And keep it because we're going to keep rolling next week. There's a lot to go through, but we'll do as much as we can tonight. And pretty much everything that's going to be on the screen is in your handout so that you guys don't have to take crazy fast notes all night long. Um, I ask for forgiveness for the, uh, any typos that are in there. My, my uh, proofreader and I had some miscommunication about what file we were updating, and, well, there's typos. So I'm sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so uh, if you don't know me, my name is Zach Milstead. I... Uh, one of the th- many things that I do is I teach philosophy at OU. Um, so I'm a grad student there in my last year trying to finish up my PhD, and I teach philosophy classes. Uh, and I've been teaching in secular universities since about 2016. So most of my time that I'm out in the world, I talk uh, with college students, and that's who I kind of spend, spend my time with. And uh, the question that who wrote the Gospels Seems kind of, well, duh, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's who wrote them. Uh, And that seems obvious to us. But when you get into a classroom with a professor who has at least one PhD and years of experience in that area, and he says, no, he, she, says, no, that's actually not the case. It wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't know who wrote them, and here's why. And they give you all these reasons, right? Imagine yourself being a freshman, and being in that environment. Um, and you have no response. Most kids don't have responses when they're in that type of situation because you have this you know, really intelligent, intelligent person with all these credentials telling you that, hey, you're wrong. Your beliefs are wrong. Um, and that's often the case that I see and hear of uh, students when they get to the university level. Uh, humorously, it's not just there for me. Uh, I had that, for, that experience when I was in college, but it was a coworker of mine who started asking me really tough questions that I had absolutely no, no answer for. And I hear, uh, I don't teach high school and middle school, but I hear people telling, hey, I'm seeing this at, in high school and middle school even these days. So this isn't just something that happens in the universities. Um, so what we're going to be talking about tonight is actually, you know, who actually wrote these and why we believe these. Um, I'll start off with a... <clears throat> verse of scripture, my iPad will update, having some delays, technical issues. So, Deuteronomy 3, or 32, 7 says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. You guys will see why that's relevant as we uh, progress through this if I can get my slides to 
David, I might have to get you to tap, uh, hit the key for me. Okay. Um, so, as we talk about the Gospels and why they are, uh, or who wrote them, we're going to be interested in two things. We're going to be interested in authenticity and genuineness, all right? So, we'll say a historical document uh, is, or historical work is authentic if it is substantially true or truthful account of the events and the reports, right? So it has truth to it. We'll say that an ancient historical work, like the Gospels, is genuine if it was actually written by the person or persons to whom it is attributed, okay? So that's two important things. What we really, really want to know is that the Gospels are authentic, right? Because that means, oh yeah, they're probably very true, and what they say is true. That's important. But before we can even get there, we need to establish if they're genuine, right? <clears throat> Why? Why is that important? Well, showing that the go- Gospels were actually written by who we think they were written by um, eliminates anybody from sent- coming up with just crazy theories that it's, you know, this is just some myth that somebody came up with hundreds and hundreds of years and later, and they just, you know, came up with whatever ideas they wanted to. So if it's genuine, we can eliminate those type of expl- uh, explanations, right? So that's what we're going to try to do tonight. So, if you can go on to the next one, David. One more. So, here's our goals. We're going to examine evidence of the genuineness of the Gospels, uh, and we're going to consider the principal arguments of some of the people who dispute uh, the genuineness of the Gospels. And we may not finish that tonight, but we've got two weeks of it, so we've got plenty of time. Um, And now... Let me make this clarification. What we're going to be doing tonight is not, is is an argument based on how well they're considered as historical documents, okay? I'm not going to be making any type of things, like big deals about uh, how inspired um, Scripture is. I do believe that Scripture is inspired. But this is the type of thing that any historian would agree to. Okay? So we're going by the standards that any secular historian would agree to. Not doing any type of special pleading or anything like that. All the standards that we're going to talk about tonight is what you do in history. Um, and we're going to see how far we can get with that. Uh, <clears throat> so let's look at a couple of people who uh, kind of have some objections against the gospel. This guy's name is Bart Ehrman. Uh, he's actually a former pastor and seminarian, now a agnostic, sometimes atheist uh, professor. Uh, he's a very winsome and uh, dynamic speaker. He writes a lot of books. I met him one time at a speaking th- uh, thing in New Orleans when I was in seminary. Uh, he's, he's very dynamic and persuasive. And he writes a bunch of books, mainly aimed at kind of lay people, people in the church. Um, and Ehrman says this, some books, such as the Gospels, had been written anonymously, anonymously, only later to be ascribed to certain authors who probably did not write them, maybe apostles and friends, or, and friends of the apostles. So this is from his book, Jesus Interrupted. <clears throat> Next slide. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a, was a professor, a professor at Oxford, uh, he is also a very influential guy in atheist agnostic circles, writes a lot of books, kind of aimed at the same level that um, 
that Ehrman does. And he was a professor for a long time, and then he started writing all these books and realized, oh, I can make more money doing this. So he retired from professorship and just kept writing these books because he was making enough money that he didn't have to teach anymore. And so this is from his book, The God Delusion. The Gospels are not reliable accounts of what happened in the history of the real world. All were written long after the death of Jesus. We hope that's the case because Jesus died a lot way before they were written, so that would be weird otherwise. Anyway, and also after the epistles of Paul, which mention almost none of the alleged facts of Jesus' life. Nobody knows who the, four gosp- uh, who, who the four evangelists were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. And this is where things start off. Right? This is the starting off point in conversations in, in college most of the time. And if you don't believe me that this is something that happens a lot, uh, on the next slide I have, these are cutouts of uh, uh, several different rooms that I'm in on Facebook. I hang out in rooms with a bunch of atheists who like to say crazy things, uh, or things that I think are quite, quite crazy. And this was from one post last week that went on like 150 different comments. And it was, you know, over and over again, there's no evidence for the existence of Jesus. Uh, It's a contrived story um, used to control uh, the Israelites uh, uh, and then later used to control, uh, uh, to to rule Rome and, and, and the Roman world or something along those lines. That's a pretty normal line. Um... So it's not just these academics, right? This is a pretty normal thing that you see all the time in pretty uh, normal circumstances. Facebook, uh, Reddit, you know, Twitter, you know, pretty much any social media. Uh, go to YouTube, just search. You'll find all kinds of fun stuff on there. Uh, so anywhere online. So, but places that students get a lot of information from, right? <clears throat> so... That's the stuff where we're trying to find some, see if there's some reasonable historical argument against. And it's going to be some work, so be prepared, uh, but it's worthwhile once you get through it. So <clears throat> there's some specific things that we can do to assess uh, genuineness. Uh, and this is also in your handout. There are internal tests and external tests that we're going to be looking at. Um, external tests include attributions of authorship, authorship so that's basically, whom did people say that wrote the Gospels? Who, who did people say, like the generation after that they were written, who did those people say wrote the Gospels? Uh, early use in other works, right? Um, so if somebody's like quoting it or somebody's like uh, talking about it, borrowing ideas, paraphrasing it, well then these books had to be, have been written already and were in existence. Um, and often those people will say who they were quoting, or we can find hints that are very clear about what they were, what they were using as their source material. Uh, integration with other historical sources. So this is basically, did they get the historical details right? Uh, if you read something that's supposedly from the second century, and they're talking about airplanes and helicopters, you know, that's not the right historical context, right? We, that's, you, know, you can say there's something fishy going on. So, did they get the historical context right? Internal tests, uh, we have overall consistency. How well do the books, like the Gospels, do they line up with each other, right? Are they consistent? Um, undesigned coincidences is a similar, it's a very special category of a type of consistency. 
Probably won't make it to that tonight, but hopefully next week we'll get to it. And then other things that are just internal marks of authenticity, just fingerprints of the author that give you some idea who actually wrote it, just from the special details that are there. So that's the type of stuff that we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> so in about A.D. 400, right? So 400 um, A.D.-ish, there's a guy named Augustine, right? And Augustine is an early church father, and he was kind of having a debate with another guy named Faustus, right? Faustus is a Manichaean. Manichaeans believe that uh, they don't believe in God. They believe that there's something, you know, some sort of dualism. There's some type of good and there's some type of bad. It's kind of like the light side and dark side of the force in Star Wars, something like that, right? But they don't really believe in God, generally speaking. And Faustus and Augustine were having a conversation via letters and kind of a, you know, uh, very strongly worded discussion, <laughs> Um, and Faustus is the first person that we know of, that we have record of, to systematically challenge the authorship of the gospel, right? So this is Jesus died on the cross around 30 AD. This is about 370 years later. He's the first person to challenge the authorship of the gospel, and he's the first person whose name we know that questioned the authorship of any of the gospels. And that's, that's important to note, Right? 370 years. Why did it take that long before anybody started questioning these books, right? Um, that's that's going to play into what we're going to be talking about tonight. <clears throat> um, and basically, Augustine's response to Faustus is something like, do we do this with other historical documents? Do we treat other historical documents this way? No one doubts the genuineness of the books attributed to Hippocrates. Hippocrates is like the Hippocratic Oath guy. Um, and then he says, Because there is a succession of testimonies to the books from the first time Hippocrates uh, to the present day, which makes it unreasonable either now or hereafter to have any doubts about the subject. Right? <clears throat> There's a testimony of who wrote the book from when it was written until now. And we just can't doubt that. How do we know the authorship of the works of Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Varro, and other similar writers? But by this unbroken chain of evidence. You know, that makes sense, right? Um, and that's the type of evidence, that's the type of chain that we're going to be looking at tonight to start off with. <clears throat> okay, so the early attestation of authorship. These are the guys that we're going to kind of talk about specifically. Tertullian of Carthage, around 207 A.D., Clement of Alexandria, around 180, Irenaeus of Lyons, around 180, uh, the Muratorian Fragment, around 170, Justin Martyr, around 150, and Papias of Hierapolis, Hierapolis around 125. Okay, So that's 125 to 207. That's 95 to 177 years approximately after the death of Christ. Just to put that into perspective, Declaration of Independence was signed August 2nd, 1776, I think. So that's about 243 years ago or so. This is less time, much less time than that we're talking about. Nobody doubts who signed the Declaration of Independence or that it's genuine, right? Um, so we're talking about much less time than that, okay? <clears throat> And more specifically, 
the apostle John lived well into his 80s, and that was right around the turn of the first century. So we're talking about people who were just a generation uh, uh, after John himself, right, who was an apostle who was with Jesus, who traveled around with Jesus, who knew Jesus. Um, so that's the time frame that we're looking at. Okay, what we'll do is go through each of these folks and see what they say about who wrote the Gospels and then compare that at the end. So <clears throat> Tertullian was a uh, Roman, and I want to say he was a lawyer, if I remember correctly. And Tertullian writes, The Gospels were written by Matthew and John, who were apostles, and Luke and Mark, who were apostolic men. By that means people who were friends and just hung around or traveled with the apostles, something like that. Mark's gospel is the record of Peter's preaching. They tell the same basic facts about Jesus, including his virgin birth and his fulfillment of prophecy. They bore the names of their authors from antiquity. So they bore those names since a long time ago, right? And this is 207 A.D., and the ancient churches vouch for them and no other. So who are the ancient churches? Church of Rome, Church of Ephesus, uh, Corinth, you know, all the churches that Paul wrote letters to. So why is he saying this? Well, <clears throat> he was criticizing a heretic um, sect that was led by a, name named, a man named Marcion. And Marcion hated the Old Testament, and he hated Judaism, did not like it at all. Uh, so much so that he basically ended up cutting out all the stuff that referenced Judaism in the Old Testament from the New Testament books and published it as a gospel. Um, but, you know, if you take all of that out, uh, you're not really left with much. You're mostly left with parts of Luke, right? You don't get any of Matthew because Matthew's full of uh, Judaism, right? Matthew was a Jew and wrote to Jews. And it's just full of uh, prophecy and references to Judaism and, and, and idioms that, you, that the Jews used. Um, so he cut all of the, that out. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson did something similar. He took out anything that was, uh, had to do with miracles or the supernatural because he was, really wasn't a fan. So something along those lines. And he published his, his gospel. Didn't put a name on it. Didn't say who wrote it. He just published it. And Tertullian's like, hey, your gospel is just a ripoff of ours, right? We have the, the real thing, and we actually know who wrote it, and that's why he's saying these things, okay? That's why we get this information from Tertullian. So if you jump eh, a few years uh, uh, back in time, we have Clement. <clears throat> Clement was a great teacher uh, in the church. He led a school in Ag Alexandria uh, in, in Egypt, right? <clears throat> which is a very far away from Rome. Um, and Clement says this. Mark wrote his gospel by request from his knowledge of Peter's preaching at Rome. Uh, Matthew and Luke were published first. Uh, they are the gospels containing genealogies. John's gospel was the last one to appear. It was written at the urging of his friends. Okay, slightly different information but consistent with what Tertullian is saying. He's, we're just getting a few more details, but he's pretty much saying the same, same thing along the same lines, right? And you'll see a pattern arise out of this. Okay, 
So we have Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyons. Irenaeus uh, was in France, right? So that is not close to Egypt. Uh, he was a far way away, which is going to be a, play a very interesting thing when we start looking at this uh, later, where everybody was located. So he was a bishop in France. <clears throat> and he says this, Matthew's gospel was the first one written. It was originally written in the Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic. Uh, Mark, a disciple of Peter, handed down in, uh, in his gospel what Peter preached, right? Same thing that we see uh, from before. Mark was traveling around with Peter, and he's writing down everything that Peter preaches. Luke, a companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him, preached by Paul. So Luke traveled around with Paul, and he wrote down what Paul preached, right? It's those apostolic men again. And then John, the disciple of the Lord, published the gospel while living in Ephesus, at Ephesus in Asia. Okay, some new information, right? But we're just adding a little bit of details each time that's slightly different. Story's consistent all the way through, but we're getting new details with each reference as we get closer back to the time of Jesus. <clears throat> so there is a bad translation, I guess we could say, of a document um, which all scholars probably uh, agree goes back to about 170. It's called the Moratorian Fragment. If it's misspelled on your handout, I apologize. Moratorian uh, with a U. <clears throat> um, and it's dated this way because it mentions some specific pope that was doing something, so there's a historical record. They're able to tie it back to uh, the time of this pope. Um, and the first page is lost. We don't actually have the first page. That's why it's re referred to as a fragment. Um, but it starts out, what, what we can read, it starts out, thirdly, Luke. So, good bet that the first two parts of that that preceded, thirdly, Luke, is Matthew, Mark. <clears throat> and the fragment continues to say, Luke, the physician and companion of Paul, wrote his gospel from the reports of others, since he had, since he had not personally seen Jesus. Uh, that's some interesting information that we didn't have before that's corroborated actually in Luke that, you know, the, in Acts, that he was a physician and traveled with Paul. Um, <clears throat> which, Acts is the sequel to Luke, right? It's the follow-up. It's the second part uh, written by the same author. Uh, and then he says, John, who was an eyewitness, wrote his gospel after the rest at the urging of some friends, right? Repeated information. Same story, pretty much. Slightly different details. We're getting a little bit more information and building a bigger picture, but it's consistent all the way through. So <clears throat> we're at 170 AD at this point. Um, and so far, there are virtually no dissenting views up to this point as to what the tradition is. The tradition is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their Gospels. There's basically nobody who disagrees with it. There's a small group uh, named the, the Ologi that were in Asia Minor that most people don't even consider because they just thought that John didn't write John and they had some problems with some, with some of the rev, uh, stuff in Revelation, but um, most people just don't even, we don't even know who they were, so they kind of ignore them. Um, they're really not that big of a deal. But that's it, right? That's, that's all we've got as far as disagreement goes. And then we get to Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is 150. Uh, Justin was a big 
apologists for the faith. And he writes, The Christians possessed memoirs of Jesus, which were also called Gospels. That's an important fact for later when we read some more about Justin. They were written by apostles and by those who were their followers. Right? Same thing, those apostolic men. Uh, Justin didn't give any names because, well, that wasn't his purpose to name these things. Uh, he's just talking about the, the books and the, and the Christian faith at this time. Um, and he says, They tell us of such events, such as the visit of the Magi at Jesus' birth, and his agony in Gethsemane, right? So the visit of the Magi is only recorded where? Quiz time. Matthew, right, good. Um, only recorded in Matthew. And his agony, like where you know, he sweated drops of blood, that's recorded where? Luke, right, only in Luke. So he's given us a very specific information that you know, he would have to have had access to these documents, and they would have had to be uh, authoritative if he's quoting these in such a way, or talking about these in such a way. Interestingly, Justin had a student. Uh, his student was named Tatian, and Tatian produced what's called a harmony of the four Gospels. It's like an interweaving of the four Gospels together, and it was called the Diatessaron. It was a connective narrative, right? Um, until the mid-1800s, we didn't have a copy of this that anybody knew about. Um, and <clears throat> diatessaron, the word itself, means through four, right? And everybody usually took that to mean through the four Gospels, uh, that you know, our four Gospels. Uh, but there were some clever critics, German guys in the mid-1800s, and they came along and said, well, no, no, no. It couldn't mean the four Gospels, not, not our, the four Gospels that are generally attributed, because the Gospel of John wasn't written at that time. It couldn't have been that. The Gospel of John was written, written later than Tatian. It must have been something else. Well, around 1888, we actually found out that we had a copy of the Diatessaron. It, just been, it just, had just been sitting around, and nobody knew what it was. And somebody took the time to translate it. Um, and this document, right, the one that could not have been anything that had to do with John because John hadn't been written yet, it starts off like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Does that sound familiar? That's John, right? And it goes on to incorporate every aspect of our four Gospels. All the little details, it, 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 it has all of it. Um, and anything that is, is missing, I think, two of the genealogies, and it doesn't incorporate some, a, a few little details, but those are paralleled with verses from our four Gospels. So you'd, be, you'd have to be crazy to think that that's not what it's based off of. Um, <clears throat> and if he's putting this together, right, if he's putting this out there and for the church to read, well, it had to be something that the church would agree to. Otherwise, there would have been a huge uproar. Um, so it had to be the Gospels that the churches agreed were authoritative, which ends up being our Gospels, interestingly enough. So this is around 150-ish um, we're at this point. Now we're going to throw in not a church father, not anybody who liked Christianity. We're actually going to throw in somebody who was a big critic of Christianity. Uh, his name was Celsus. Uh, Celsus was a brilliant rhetorician, right? Wrote a lot, read a lot, and he hated Christianity. Uh, and he actually has a work where he mocks Christianity and the New Testament writings. 
Humorously enough, everything that he uses to make fun of Christianity comes from our four Gospels, right? This is a guy that doesn't like Christianity, um, but he doesn't use anything from any Gnostic Gospels that came later on. Um, who is it? Uh, James Brown guy who does the, uh, the, the movies, uh, make it a big deal about the information in the Gnostic Gospels. He doesn't quote any of those. He only quotes the Synoptic Gospel, uh, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <clears throat> and to rub it all in, he says, I could have written many other things about Jesus, but I have chosen these things from your own writings in order to wound you with your own weapons. Well, thanks, Kelsus. You just proved to us what our own writings were. It was the traditional Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, those were the authoritative writings at that time. Um, and humorously enough, God uses somebody who hates Christianity to show, hey, the basis of our faith is actually genuine, right? So <clears throat> we go further back in time to Papias of Hierapolis. About 125 A.D., uh, Papias, we don't, actually don't have any of the writings of Papias. We have his writings in the church histories of Eusebius. Uh, he was a church historian, a almost manic collector of books and writings during the early uh, second century. And he had a massive collection of books, and we find Papias' writings in there. And Papias says, Mark, having been the interpreter of Peter, wrote down what Peter had preached accurately, though not necessarily in order. That's new interest, uh, information, right? He wrote down the same things uh, that we see elsewhere, but he notes that the order is different than some of the other Gospels. Um, and then he says Matthew wrote the Logia, right? And we're, <clears throat> what Logia is, it means oracles, what that actually translates to, and there's a big debate about that. But Matthew wrote it, and it was in the Hebrew language. Um, <clears throat> So we go all the way back to 125 A.D. That's very close to around the time um, after John the, uh, the disciple John died. Okay, so this is where the part about paying attention to geography is important, right? So you remember, we had uh, Irenaeus, who was in France. We had uh, Clement. We had uh, Papias. Um, we had, who am I missing? Go to the next one. Um, Clement, right. So Clement's all the way down there in Alexandria. Papias is up there in Heropolis. Tertullian is in Carthage. Justin's up in Rome. And Irenaeus is all the way in France. That's pretty far apart, right? How do you think these guys got on the same page about you know, where they stood with things? Just popped on Facebook and you know, shared it? No. Um, I mean, it's difficult to travel during these times, right? It's not an easy thing. They didn't just get together and had a meeting to get on the same page. More likely, way more likely, is it that, hey, this is the tradition that is a consensus of all the churches. This isn't something like the church in Rome, you know, push this out to everybody, right? That's you know, would be highly unlikely. Uh, they had to come to consistent, consistent and um, they couldn't have done that uh, any other way than if it was the tradition that the entire church accepted. Okay? So, 
I know that map's not easy to see, but. Okay, so just a brief summary, right? So we had Tertullian, Carthage, Clement, and Alexandria, Irenaeus, Papias, and Asia Minor. Um, and at this point, there are no rival traditions for the Gospels uh, against any of the four Gospels, right? It's just those four. It's not any other Gospels. So as far as our external tests go, attribution of author, authorship, authorship, strong and consistent is the best way to describe that. But we can do more. We can go further back in time. So let's do that. So, <clears throat> early use of the four Gospels. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for many early writers who were often pastors or historians or something along those lines to write in their books or if they're preparing a sermon or trying to make a homiletic point to include uh, Scripture. Uh, this evidence takes us back before what we were talking about previously. Um, and if they're writing the scripture down in their sermons or, you know, if they're writing histories or whatnot, if they're writing it down, they're expecting their readers to recognize it. Thus, they're expecting it to be authoritative, right? This isn't just some new document that just showed up out of nowhere or they came up with. This is something that they're expecting to everybody in the church to recognize. <clears throat> so let's look at a few examples of that. Ignatius writes in his letter to Polycarp, this is about 107 AD, uh, and we know that because Ignatius died right around that time. <clears throat> and he says, In all circumstances, be as wise as a serpent and perpetually harmless as a dove. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's Matthew 10, right? 1016, I think. Uh, Polycarp does very similar things in his letter to the, to the Philippians. This is about 108, right around the same time. He said, Blessed are the poor and those persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you'd like to look that up, that's Luke 6.20. Um, and you'll note that his words aren't exactly right. He doesn't get, Polycarp doesn't get it exactly right. Um, and in his writings, he, he includes Old Testament quotations and he inclu includes New Testament and this humorous thing happens. On the really, really long portions, like if he quotes a really big piece of scripture, it's like spot on. But if it's short, he kind of mixes some words up and it's not exactly right. Why would that be? Well, if the short ones he's doing from memory, he's having to go look up the long ones, which means he actually had a copy, which means it was in existence, it was authoritative, at 107, 108 A.D., not too long after the death of John. So, very cool thing. <clears throat> um, so, a little bit different time, a couple of years after this, actually. Uh, there was a, wit, uh, a Gnostic heretic called Basilides. So, kind of like Celsus, this guy didn't exactly like Christianity, but he wanted to be perceived as a Christian, okay? So he wanted to be considered a good Christian, and so he was forced to use the literature that all the Christians use, right? So if that sounds familiar to any, like, people who want to be perceived as Christians in our current day but aren't exactly, you know, they show up at your door in two-by-twos with the Bible, but then they put, start throwing some new stuff in there. Kind of similar situation to that. Um, 
but he has to use the genuine gospels because he can't get away from it, right? Because all Christians recognize that that's what was authoritative, and they wouldn't let him get away with it. And he says uh, that, he, that each man has his own appointed time. He says the Savior su- sufficiently indicates uh, when he says, my hour is not yet come. If you look that up, my hour is not yet come, that's from the marriage at Cana, John 2, 4, right? Basilides continues. He says, this, he says, is what is mentioned in the Gospels. He was the true light which lights every man coming into the world. That's from John 10, right? Or, sorry, John 1. Um, So he's referencing actual scripture from and and confirming that that was the the gospels that were being used by the church at that time. Um, And we can keep going, right? Polycarp, in that letter to the Philippians that I mentioned earlier, he mentions Matthew, or uses portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, almost the entire New Testament, right? So we get confirmation from Polycarp in just that one letter. And that's very important to know because Polycarp is an important figure for a specific reason. Polycarp lived to be a very old uh, man. He lived for a long time. When he was a young man, he was actually the student of the Apostle John, right? He sat at John's feet learning from the Apostle himself. Interestingly enough, when uh, he started teaching people and he had his own disciples and after John had died, one of Polycarp's students was Irenaeus of Lyon, which we've already mentioned tonight. So interesting connections there, personal connections all the way back to the uh, disciples. Okay. All right. The next chart is, you're not going to be able to see it very well. It's not a good PowerPoint slide, but I wanted you to see all the check marks, right? This, the little headers up at the top include all, a bunch of authors we've talked about, Ignatius, Polycarp, Marcion, Another heretic called Valentines, uh, I think. Uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement, all these guys and some more uh, who referenced the, uh, the Gospels and used the Gospels and acknowledged the Gospels. And the check marks are definite positive use of the works in question, any of the Gospels that we're talking about. And X means the acknowledgement of the work, but it's a repudiation of it. And if there's not an X or a check, it means we don't have anything. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, overwhelming use and acknowledgement of those um, documents, right, and references to their documents early on. And then all the other Gospels out there, right, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Truth, Gospel of uh, Peter, all these ones that come up later uh, and get, you know, well, these are Gospels too. Not a word. Barely, just mostly ignored except for by heretics, right? Or people that don't like Christianity. Um, So just overwhelming evidence that, hey, our four Gospels are the ones that written by the ones we think they were, and they were authoritative really, really early on. So the four Gospels and Acts are used copiously, by the early church fathers and writers. Um, And even heretics acknowledge them, though tacitly, because they really don't want to do it too strongly, right? Um, Okay. So, briefly, we're going to come back to Justin Martyr, and I think I said that we'd do this, and we'll 
get to a close real quick after this. Justin Martyr said, On the day called Sunday, all who lived in the cities or in the country gathered together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, which he called the Gospels earlier, where the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. This is from his first apology. Um, For the Gospels to be read as Scripture in a weekly service, that must have meant that they were extremely highly regarded and well-known, right? And if they're reading these documents, well, that means they had to have them as documents, right? This wasn't just some oral tradition. They actually had something to read. And if they were all reading it, that means that they were circulated, right? Um, And this is only 120-ish years after the crucifixion, right? There's a great Greek historian uh, named Thucydides. He lived around A.D. 400. Uh, He's a pretty big deal as far as history goes. Thucydides is not mentioned by any author, that we possess at least, for 250 years after his life. Not his name, not any of his writings, not his existence, nothing, right? And we have evidence tying very, 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 much more closely. But nobody disputes whether Thucydides actually wrote what he wrote. So our evidence for the gospel that we're looking at, gospels that we're looking at so far, is tremendously strong evidence by historical standards, okay? No special pleading or anything like that, right? So external tests we did, attributions of authorship, strong and consistent, early use in other works, overwhelming. Um, Got five minutes left. We'll do a little bit of the next little piece, which is the integration with historical parts. Actually, we're going to look at some common objections. Um, remember the guy, Bart Urban, that I mentioned early on? He's the one that has the uh, objections against uh, the Gospels. Bart says, Matthew's Gospel is written completely in the third person. Even when his Gospel narrates the event of Matthew being called to become a disciple, it talks about him, not about me. Right? So Matthew is not in the first person. It's in the third person. And that seems weird, right? Why would he write in the third person? That's just strange. Well, let's see what Matthew actually says. In Matthew 9, 9, it says this. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, this is Jesus saying, follow me. And he, that's Matthew, rose and followed him, Jesus. Okay, so it is written in the third person. Dang. Does Bart have us? Well, I'm not sure that's a reason to think that Matthew didn't write the gospel. So remember Augustine and his disagreement with Faustus, the Manichaean, around A.D. 400? This is actually the very same thing that Faustus said a long time ago. And Faustus, uh, Augustine replying to this, this, this argument about the third person thing, he says, Faustus thinks himself wonderfully clever in proving that Matthew was not the writer of this gospel. Because when speaking of his own election, Matthew says not he saw me and said to me, follow me, but he, also, he said he saw him and said to him, follow me. Um, and Augustine provides an answer to Faustus, but also to Ehrman. This must be said, 
either in ignorance or from design to mislead. Faustus can so hardly be ignorant as to not have read or heard the narrators when speaking of themselves often use a construction as of speaking of another. It is more probable that Faustus wished to bewilder those more ignorant than himself in the hope of getting hold not of a few unacquainted with these things. So let's look at secular history real quick before we wrap up. So there is a secular historian called Xenophon um, who wrote the, it's called the Anabasis of Xenophon. And uh, he says in there, there was in in an army a certain Xenophon, an Athenian who accompanied the army neither as a general, nor as a captain, nor as a private, but Proxenos, an old acquaintance, had sent for him. So this is Xenophon writing about himself in the third person. It's all throughout the Anabasis. If you go and read uh, Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War, you'll see that, talking about himself in the third person. Josephus does this in the Jewish wards. Nicolaus does it in his histories. Dexippus does it in his Scythica, and on and on and on and on. This was just a thing that they did back then. That's how they wrote. They, they told the story this way. Um, so it's a very, very normal thing to, to finish off or to tell a story in the third person. So no, uh, that was actually pretty normal for Matthew to write in the third person like that. Okay, I have so much more to talk about. <laughs> I over-prepare every time. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop right here, and we'll pick up next week. So keep your uh, handouts, and, and we'll, we'll keep up, pick up with this next week and extend it a little bit. Uh, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll be done for the evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us and that you know that we need things, that you know that we need reasons to believe in you sometimes, and that others will question you and ask hard questions for, um, of us regarding you, Father. And we thank you for laying out history in such a way that we have strong evidence for everything that we believe, that this isn't just some fickle myth that we came up with. It's not some fairy tale that we believe in just because we want to, but it's historical fact. And we thank you for that, that you provide for our needs um, in all ways. We ask that you would be with us this week, Father. Carry us through the week. Let us serve you. Let us glorify you in all we do. And let us remember the things that we need to know to be able to share your gospel with the world and bring others to you. In Christ's holy name, amen. All right, you are dismissed.